HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. I'm Damon Bolte, host of The Speakeasy. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Heritage Radio Network. We are coming to you, as always, live from the back of Roberta's Pizza here in Bushwick, Brooklyn. You're tuned into the Farm Report. I'm your host, Erin Fairbanks. And today we are kicking off a multi-part series looking at the lamb and sheep industry. And to help us set the tone for the conversations we'll be having over the next couple weeks, I'm joined on the line today by my co-producer on this series, John Wilkes. John, welcome to the show. Thank you, Erin. Thank you for uh, welcoming me aboard. Thank you. Looking forward to it. Me too. So John and I got connected through um, our good friend Eric Holman, who works for the Livestock Conservancy here in the U.S. And I got an email from John a couple of months ago volunteering to, to, to introduce me a little bit more to the world, world of sheep and lamb. And in that initial email, John, you, you let me know that you used to ultrasound pregnancy scan 50,000 sheep a year, um, as well as farming sheep and beef on the wild border co- county in Wales in the UK. So your, uh, your hands have touched a lot of sheep, I feel like it's safe to say. Yes, I saw a lot. Uh, I used to get around many farms in that area and uh, used to serve sort of 200 farm- farmers with my ultrasound work. And then obviously... Uh, was a full-time sheep farmer as well. So I, I've seen a few sheep uh, and uh, very much enjoy the industry and feel the need to try and see if we can raise awareness and uh, make people more aware of sheep in the U.S. Yeah, well, that's one of the things I want to start kind of setting the scene for today. And I'm hoping you can kind of give us a little bit of a, a brief history on the lamb and sheep industry Um Kind of where where they came from in the world and, and how some of those kind of major 
um, sheep producing areas have shifted over time and, and kind of bring us up to speed to the you know 1900s. Just a small oh. a small question to okay. start. <laughs> yeah. I can well I mean, just and basically you know there are more than a billion sheep in the world, so they're they're, they're kind of a big item. Thousand breeds all over all over the world, and there are now currently I think forty breeds in the U.S. Uh, sheep came here um, via Columbus. Um, I mean, basically, they're they're a walking a walking food source. They're the original Pret-a-Manger. You're, you're going on a long on a long sort of ocean journey, and you take food you can eat. So he took a whole load of sheep along with him, which in about, I think about 1450, uh, took them along and left a few in Cuba and Santo Domingo, and then went on to do whatever he was going to do. When Cortes Cortes came back. Uh, he used some of these sheep, he picked them up, and he used them to do the same thing, to keep them going while they you know, did major exploration. And these sheep actually formed the basis of the Navajo Churro sheep, which are still about today. So they're, you know, they're kind of a, a direct link way back into that time. The main thrust of sheep into the U.S. occurred, I think, sort of 16th, 17th centuries, um, sheep were getting into the in, into the east of the country. Uh, the English uh, were trying to discourage wool manufacturing over here. So basically, it was okay to produce the wool, but all the wool had to go back to the mothership, as it were, for manufacturing. Uh, but even so, in I think middle 1600s, there were about 10,000 sheep in the colonies. And even uh, at that time in, in Massachusetts, they passed the law requiring the youth to learn to to uh, spin and weave, so that was a bit confrontational and sort of sucking it to the uh, to the English. And then towards the end of the 1600s, I think sort of uh, America was actually exporting wool goods, which wasn't what uh, the English wanted. The wool was supposed to have gone back to the UK and then been manufactured, so they could uh, make the most out of it. And I think then it was punishable in in the, in the colonies. It was punishable by getting your right hand cut off. If what you, really? If you were caught. Well, yeah, if you, if you were caught raising, uh, raising uh, wool and manufacturing. And this actually, this, this, this came along with, with, the, with the Stamp Act, was partly responsible for the American Revolutionary Wars. So sheep, sheep have got a big, a big part back, way back in the history. Presidents kept sheep and wore wool suits and made a point of wearing wool suits um, to their inauguriations. Jefferson kept sheep. George Washington raised sheep at Mount Vernon just down the road for, from where I live currently. Hog Island sheep, which are uh, still still there, which is kind of cool. And so the sheep gradually spread west, um, you know, in, into the sort of central regions of the U.S. Uh, not always in a good way. If you bring it slightly further forward, there were the range wars, which were sort of direct conflicts the result of the Homestead Act and people wanting large areas of unclaimed land to remain open and, uh, you know, the shepherds were seen as a, a sort of a, an obstacle to that for the for the uh, cow, cowboys. And so there's a big part in your history and also in, in, in the UK, because we go back a lot further, she played a huge part in the United Kingdom uh, in our history, the, the wealth of wool was um, phenomenal uh, and led in med- medieval times through our, our wool was used and kings received great taxes from it. 
and so it was a huge part of our our past as well. Um, again, it led to conflicts, the highland clearances where people were just forced off their lands so that the large landowners could then run sheep. So in the histories of both countries, uh, sheep historically have played a major part. And uh, bringing it up to modern day, the American sheep industry is is now a lot smaller. Um, back in the day, they were, I, I think, you know, 45, sort of 50-odd million sheep a year in the, in the 40s. And now it's down to just 5.3 million. So the industry um, is in, in need of a, a fillet, as they say, a bit of a boost. Um, well, I want to kind of jump off in two different directions, but I'll start with, um, you know, wh- when did sheep, if you can tell us, like, I know that New Zealand and Australia are also big sheep producing parts of the world. Was the, yeah. was, is the story more or less the same, and is it happening around the same time period? Sorry, uh, yeah, I mean, the the sheep industry in Australia and New Zealand is huge. As you intimated, I think there are 90 million sheep in Australia. Um, and, and their industry, in essence, the, uh, the Australian sheep industry came under a lot of pressure 10 years ago uh, when wool prices collapsed. And they then, uh, 10 years ago, changed their industry overnight to meat producing and have become highly successful. So uh, originally they, they were, it was wool that was a major driver, and now it's, it's more the meat side of things. Uh, as we know, New Zealand is the same thing. Uh, sheep were exported out there way back in the 1700s from, from the U.K., um, and they, they, they are a major part of their economy. So th- th- these are countries which are still highly relevant. And in the U.K., too, we have 30 million sheep, and it's a very big part of our, our rural economy uh, and still is, um, whereas, as I say, in the United States, it's for various reasons. The industry seems to have um, tailed off. I think uh, there, there are several reasons for that. Um, the, the, the American uh, need for meat was filled after the wars. The beef, chicken, and pig industries uh, prospered at the expense of the sheep industry. Uh, well, I think a lot of returning servicemen, United state servicemen came back and had been fed so much fat mutton. I think there's an expression, mutton never again, when they came back. And so they came home and raised families. And a generation seems to have missed out on having lamb. Yeah, I think that's like such an interesting, uh, an interesting part of the story is essentially we have a large group of our population, young men abroad, you know, associating this particular meat product with kind of war and and mutton being a kind of strongly flavored version of a a sheep or a lamb. And then, uh, yeah, you come back and, you know, men being kind of predominantly heads of households, kind of putting a kibosh on that whole industry, kind of like one of the unintended uh, consequences of what we eat, when in time, and, and what that gets associated with is a really kind of fascinating piece of the story. Yeah, uh, it's, I, I wouldn't say it's the whole story, but I, I think that's where things, if you look at the numbers, as I say, 1945, uh, there was 50-something million, and now we're down to, in the U.S., down to 5.3. So, and and uh, as I say, the other industries, the other meat industries, through huge resources and advertising, and when the lamb industry didn't really do that, I don't feel. And so it's about trying to recapture and about trying to stimulate interest in lamb, because I think 
there's always been this association, as you intimated, with mutton. And I think it's, it's the need to uh, make lamb as the meat you're eating and not mutton. But having said that, mutton is getting a resurgence in its own right. But very much uh, it would be good to uh, get lamb and people eating lamb here. Well, let's take a let's take a, a time out here and um, just kind of clarify some of the language that people will be hearing throughout the series. And can you maybe explain to us at at a start the difference between uh, a sheep and a lamb? Well, it's a very tricky one here. Um, in, in I'd like to think that a lamb is an animal that doesn't see its first first birthday, which is kind of a tough way to do it. But uh, in the UK, most of our lambs don't reach their first birthday. Birth first birthday, which means they are, you know, uh, killed in their prime when the meat is at its best. There is a tendency in the U.S. to get lambs older and to get carcasses bigger and the inherent risk that you run of getting over fat in some breeds. And I think that's probably what has uh, influenced uh, people a little bit is, is, is the size of carcasses here getting so big. Uh, I mean, an average... Now, the average carcass size in the U.S., I think I'm right in saying, is, is uh, 75 pounds in weight. That's carcass weight. And in the U.K., it's 55 pounds. But interestingly, um, back in 1981, the average U.S. carcass weight was sort of 45, 50 pounds. It's in the subsequent, year, uh, I don't know, 20-something years that the carcasses have got bigger and bigger. And whether this has affected the quality the quality of the lamb, which again is affecting people's, you know, consumer choice. I, uh, it could well be something along those lines as well. So again, on the language front, you know, we're talking about a sheep and a lamb and drawing kind of a rough line on the fact that, you know, a lamb is less than a year and once it's older than a year, you're calling it a sheep. Um, and those are terms in reference to live animals. But when we're talking about meat on the plate, we still use the word yep. lamb, but then the word sheep gets traded out for mutton. Is that correct? Well, it's the M word. Uh, the M word, uh, the mutton, the term mutton isn't a phrase that's particularly popular within the American sheep industry because, again, of all the, con- you know, the connotations of, uh, of that historically. But, um, yes, lamb would technically go from being lamb to becoming mutton. And then uh, sheep is a sort of a generic term for all for all um, for all, uh, all ovines, basically. I think, but, but the, the mutton is the next stage, and mutton can be uh, technically an animal that's perhaps just over being a lamb to even being a, 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 an older animal that's five or six years old. It, it, it is technically classed as mutton, and I, I think people, as you intimate, pe- people do get confused about what is lamb and what is mutton. Um, there is, within the U.S., there is the ability, you've got the USDA's inspectors in the abattoirs actually age an animal here by a joint in its front leg. It's called the break joint. And as an animal matures, this joint fuses to become solid. And in some animals, I believe that this can remain technically still uh, not broken, as it were, until they're two years of age. So technically, it's possible for USDA-inspected lambs to uh, to be two years of age and still classed as lamb. So that's what we're... So it, yeah. uh, it's a little bit of a misnomer. In, in the rest of the world, in the US, sorry, in the UK, in Australia, New Zealand, we use dentition, the, the, the teeth of a sheep, to give its age. 
whereas in the US, um, this use of this joint is the um, accepted uh, norm by the USDA. I so think that's, that's, that's like that's kind of interesting. Yeah, some of the stuff that we'll kind of cover in this series, kind of looking at um, indeed. Look, yeah, yeah, looking at like uh, technology in the sheep and lamb industry, and then also looking um, at sheep on the global market, and some of these changes um, that you see from country to country, and where that leads to confusion, and 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 how that essentially positions American lamb on, um, you know, I don't know if I would say winning or losing side of an equation, but you know, it 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 places it in its own space. One of the questions I want to also clear up before we. Um, move to break and bring our next guest on is, you know, you talked a little bit uh, when you were speaking about Australia, the difference between wool breeds and meat breeds. And can you just for yeah. our, our listeners kind of talk a little bit about what the difference is between those two and, and where um, they overlap in the meat market? Do, you know, can you, you can eat wool breeds, but um, you know, w- why do you make those changes or distinctions uh, like what you're going to yeah. raise? Yeah. I see. Yeah, no, the the the, the wool breed, uh, the wool breeds. I'm still very new to the US, so I'm finding my way around. But I mean, merino typically um, was actually uh, sort of developed here, and I, and I think it's where it went to Australia from was from the US way back in the midst of time. So the merino was basically a wool, uh, a breed that was developed quite a large frame, a lot of folds of skin, which will obviously grow wool, which will clip more wool, and the shape of the animals was was secondary. The, the the shape of the uh, the animal, the amount of meat it's carrying, would be secondary to the sort of the amount of frame it had and literally skin, which would grow wool. Now the meat breeds uh, in 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 the UK, uh, we concentrate far more on meat. So you have breeds like the Suffolk and the Hampshire and the Texel and the Charolais sheep, which is a very popular breed. And these animals have been bred specifically to. Uh, have better shape, so they have the the carcass yields more meat. They grow probably a little bit faster than wool breeds. So these are the animals which are now specialist meat breeds in a way. And the wool side of things is taken care of. I believe here uh, there's breeds like the Rambouillet, which I think you can go both ways with it. You can eat it, and you can also it'll it'll cut wool. But um, I think uh, the, the there is a clear differentiation between the the wool breeds and the uh, the meat producing breeds, uh, and has been developed. People have developed these breeds and got them meatier and building more uh, more uh, carcasses with higher meat yield. And that is what we are going to be talking a little bit with our next guest, Keith Martin from Purebred Lamb, mm-hmm. who will be joining us in the second half of the show. John, thanks yep. so much for helping us set the scene, and I look forward to circling back to you at the end of the series to, to help us wrap up. But it was great to okay. uh, get a chance to chat today. I really appreciate it. That's okay. It's been good talking about sheep. Never, never enough sheep. Never enough sheep talk. You heard it here first. So we are going to move to a short station break. And when we come back, we'll be on the line with Keith Martin of Purebred Lamb. So hang tight.
Since 2001, Heritage Foods USA has sold pasture-raised, antibiotic-free heritage meats to restaurants and homes around the country. Our farmers raise their animals with care using traditional methods guaranteed to produce the very best-tasting meat. Our pork breeds include Berkshire, Red Wattle, Duroc, Gloucester Old Spot, Large Black, and Tamworth, and our beef comes from Piedmontese, Angus Akiyushi, Belgian Blue, Highland, Simmental, and Belted Galloway cattle. We also carry a rotation of 24 rare breeds of heritage chicken, seasonal specialties like lamb, goat, geese, and of course, heritage turkeys. Visit us online at www.heritagefoodsusa.com or give us a call at 718-389-0985 to place your order today. This is Clay Gordon of thechocolatelife.com, and you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org. All right. We are back. You've tuned into the Farm Report, and we are continuing our sheep and lamb conversation. We're joined on the line by Keith Martin. Um, Keith, uh, back in 1989, left his career in investment banking um, for, some might say, greener pastures. And over the next few years, he worked to put together around 200 acres of farmland in Greene County, Pennsylvania, and launched his own sheep farm. Um, Keith, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Aaron, and very much so. Thank you for having me on and um, considering anything that I might have to say of interest to you guys. Thank you very much. <laughs> I'm, um, I'm honored to uh, be on the program, so appreciate the, uh, the opportunity. So how does one go from a career in investment um, banking to running a, a sheep farm? Well, um, I get I get asked that a lot. I'll bet. <laughs> it, it was really, uh, uh, well, I was disillusioned with what I thought I wanted to do for a career. Um, you know, I was formally educated as a finance and uh, had a finance degree. Thought I wanted to kind of make a living on Wall Street or uh, at least as a stockbroker. And uh, I tell folks all the time, it took me three years to find out and three years to get out. Um I, I really didn't know, uh, you know, I grew up, you know, 10 minutes away from here in Greene County, so I was I was a country boy, um, and I really didn't know what I was, you know, looking at getting into. But I quickly found out, and, and I didn't, uh, it just really was something that was unsettling to me, and I wasn't happy at all, so um, I had to make a change. And why sheep? Well, um I looked around me at that time, um, and to those that I respected most, um, you know, you get at that point where it's like, holy cow, you know, what am I going to do here? I'm into this six, six and a half years, and, and uh, you know, just exactly what, what's going on here, what, I'm, what, what kind of change am I going to make? And, and uh, so I looked around, you know, those folks that I respected most at the time, and they were all farmers. Um, I used to make up excuses to go out and you know, see, see these folks uh, in my capacity then, again, as a stockbroker. Um, and I just really loved their, their lifestyle. I just, uh, I used to get Gail and Catherine Mosner, I used to love to go out there. I mean, it doesn't get any better than going out there in January and you've got, you know, fresh cream and peaches. I, I, I can't begin to tell you, you know, how many reasons... Um, I would make the, or excuses I would make to go out and see these folks. So they were all farmers. So uh, I quickly uh, 
just you know pretty much decided that's what I wanted to do. Why sheep? Um, within that context, um, I thought at first it was a, a multiple crop. There was obviously, it was a meat operation and a meat opportunity, but also there was a wool clip and, uh, you know, a crop, a wool crop as well. Um, and it ties most definitely to these individuals that I admired most and really were influential on in me making the change that I made. They all had sheep and they, um, you know, they all maintained flocks. So it was that influence. That influence. And so there was, there was like a, a bank of resources in the region uh, that you could draw upon? Well, pretty much, yeah. They definitely uh, became, uh, you know, mentors um, in those early years. Um, a lot of them have passed on now, uh, unfortunately. Um, but uh, it, it was so significant to me, you know, at that time, um, because obviously I, I really didn't know, you know, one end of the sheep from another at that time. I just simply knew that, um, something was was moved, you know, inside me to do this, uh, based on you know the experience with them, both specifically the sheep and also their lifestyle. So one of the things, I mean, farming definitely has a reputation for being kind of an insider outsider culture, and you know, you obviously um, got a toehold in the industry, started building up your business, but I feel like one of the things that really sets you apart from most producers who I have on the show is, is you know, you have a, a, a patent. I mean, I'm looking at US 767-0213-B12, or B2, you know, methods of monitoring the production history of consumable animal primal cuts, uh, yeah. also known as safe alternative. Um, can you tell us, you know, where, what, what, what prompted you to pursue this type of um, management system on your farm and why it felt like the right thing to do to, to put it under patent? Well, um, it, it just kind of naturally emerged. It was a, kind of the natural next steps for, for me. Um, as, as we observed early on in these processes, when I first got started, uh, like I said a moment ago, I knew nothing about what I was doing, really. And I thought I had to be involved with every aspect of, uh, of the operation. And, you know, so I had to be there when every lamb was born kind of thing. Um, I quickly learned that I was more intervening than I was anything else. Um, they know a lot more about being a sheep than I know about being a sheep. Uh, so I had to really change because I, I, I was really kind of messing things up, to tell you the truth, in those, in those early years. So I stepped back and I said, you know, I'm going to observe. What I'm, I really am messing things up here. I'm going to step back and, and, and observe these natural processes, more specifically really around the lambing time. But obviously, you know, in, in other aspects of, of the life cycle as well, in the production cycle. And that's when things really changed. Uh, and I began to notice um, through observation what their needs were. Um, we call that today the voice of the lamb. We really can recognize, and they do communicate. Uh, you can definitely pick up um, on, on signals, uh, you know, from what they'll let you know when they need salt. Like right now, this is August, it's extremely hot. Believe me, I know when they let me know that they need salt. Um, you know, things like that you know, to be specific about, you know, any kind of one signal. So over the years, through this observation, 
um, we could develop certain production protocols, protocols of production, let's put it that way. And by codifying those and, and, and creating, uh, you know, this document, we were able to, I like to think anyway, um, be able to record, you know, a, a very natural process, what we call a safe alternative of a production model for lambs and, and for sheep and lambs. And, and obviously with great success, I mean, I guess I should mention to our listeners that, um, you know, you guys are the, the brand of choice for Chef Thomas Keller of the, you know, French Laundry and Per Se and another of uh, other uh, really well-regarded restaurants um, around the country. Um, how did that relationship start? Well, uh, you know, first off, thank you for that. And let me make a, a, another statement, okay, before we get into answering that question. I, I tell folks this all the time as well. If, if you like the lamb, thank the lamb. Um, really, uh, I'm just uh, I'm just kind of the messenger here. Um, I'm the agent, not the principal. Um, you know, we really represent, and hence tying back into uh, the safe alternative, um, we, we're representing this animal, and you know, this animal really gives all that it has to give. Um, and, and we really should and have developed what we think is a reverent and respectful, uh, you know, production model uh, as it relates to the animal and what their needs are and kind of focusing on them and putting them, you know, ahead of all else, certainly ahead of whatever commercial interest might be there. And an interesting thing developed from approaching things from that focus, we really don't have to worry about this quality perspective you're talking about. Um, you know, if we take care when the animal's born, and actually even we're working with even prior to that, but and then when the animal's weaned and, and when it's backgrounded and when it's finished, by the time we get to a point of harvest and a point of consumption, um, you know, that animal is making that contribution. That animal is basically saying, look, hey, I like the fact that I have spring water to drink. I like this model. I, I, Keith, I'm going to give you the, the best example of myself in a product form that I possibly can. Uh, you know, that kind of sounds out there, I guess. But, you know, that's just exactly the truth. Um, you know, so if you like the lamb, thank the lamb, you know, kind of thing. And, and again, I tell folks that all the time. As it relates to connecting with these, everything's usually reverse engineered, um, except when it comes to folks like Thomas. Thomas is a visionary. He's way out ahead of, uh, you know, most of us when it comes in. We were lockstep. He and I really kind of joined at the hip philosophically. Um, and, and, and these guys, culinary always leads, and then these guys are usually out ahead of food trends four and five years. Um, so it was kind of a natural, you know, partnership for Thomas and I to get together on, uh, you know, the production of lamb under a safe alternative model. Yeah, I mean, your website um, uses the word uh, holistic, um, which, you know, I looked up in the, the, the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, you know, which defines okay. it as, you know, relating to or concerned with holes or with complete systems rather than with the analysis of treatment of or dissection into parts. And I think um, what, it, what it sounds like a lot of what you're talking about as you approach your production model is 
looking at the the whole system. And if you're doing that, a lot of things kind of take care of themselves. But your, you know, your system, your business as it exists now includes, you know, multiple farmers, a packing plant, a mail order and a wholesale business. So can you talk a little bit about um, how those things are, are integrated? I mean, I think often folks who identify as, you know, foodies, in a lot of ways you're taught that vertical integration is kind of a, a, a dirty word. You know, it's what's allowed for the consolidation of the poultry or the beef or pork industries. Um, but then we see producers like you, producers like our friend Will Harris down at White Oak Pastures, who are, I don't know, following a similar structure, but I, with different intent, with different outcomes. Um, can you talk a little bit about that from this holistic perspective, like how that has operationally, you know, realized itself as your business has grown to include all these diverse parts and partners? Sure. Um, <clears throat> we do operate under a holistic philosophy, and I think there's there has to be, you know, kind of a mirroring of the business model as it relates to the life cycle of the animal and the, and the safe alternative production model. Um, when, when you're talking about working with an animal prior to birth, and then, and then obviously through all those stages, it's not just about being all natural. It's not just about being holistic. It's not just about uh, you know being animal compassion. It's not just about feed and water analysis and consumption. It's all those things. Um, and and you really have to get a grasp of that um, to to be able to effectively mirror you know what you're connecting or trying to connect together, which is the business model. So the mirror of, of this holistic focus on this animal and this holistic approach under the holistic umbrella um, would be the, an element of production, which is, the, you know, the uh, safe alternative. But then beyond that, we have the packing houses, and we do integrate that. Uh, we do have integrated marketing, and we have, you know, I tell chefs all the time there's no one you know involved here this is you have direct access to this animal you may as well be on the farm um, a great example of that and I'll get into more specific detail about the, the integrated business model in just a second but a great example is that I spoke at per se a few years ago and again Thomas is so far ahead on, on some of this stuff he he asked me to come up and and this is the connection that was made um, he, he he had a special dinner that evening, invited me and two others to come up. And, and the statement that I made to them I think was very poignant, and it, it speaks to what you're talking about now. I said, you know, at 7 o'clock this morning, I'm standing in my barns and I'm feeding lambs. It's 7 o'clock this evening, I'm standing in New York and I'm talking to you. And, you know, that's how connected you can be as a consumer. Um, and even though you're in New York... Okay, it really just comes down to, um, you, you know, your, your decisions um, and, and, and being discerning in your purchase decisions and connecting to um, operations that are vertically integrated, that operate holistically, and connect that, that consumer to the source, and then also vice versa, obviously the lamb directly to, uh, you know, I tell chefs, too, all the time, look, you, I don't know how to cook. You, you take care of that. I know this animal, and I'll, I'll, I'll represent it. And between the two of us, we, we make a pretty good combination where a period of time um, 
months actually uh, is, is actually covered and it, it finally gets to a plate where a consumer can uh, respectfully and reverently uh, enjoy the product. So the business model, I used everything tying back all the way to the very first question about the finance degree. I don't regret anything to do with those, those six and a half years. Believe me, I've used every bit of that, um, that training and that experience to help me formulate this integrated business model um, that mirrors the holistic production model. Um, to where we, we can get this, this, this commutation of data from the animal to the end user, um, so where that end user can actually be engaged and connected in a relationship sense to this animal. So um, I guess one of the things we were talking about with John in the beginning of the show um, was looking a little bit more broadly at the lamb industry in the United States and, and some of the opportunities that existed here for um, some growth um, in volume, but also, um, you know, some essentially like reintroducing lamb to American consumers. I guess from your purview, you know, what does success in the American lamb industry look like? I mean, if, if we're doing things correct and approaching them from a holistic standpoint, what is the future of American lamb? Well, I think it's I think it's bright. We we definitely have uh, you know the lamb of choice. I don't think there's any question about that. And uh, obviously, no offense to Australian or New Zealand, uh, it, it, it's just simply uh, a different profile. Um, and I, I'm sure there are folks that uh, that prefer uh, you know the smaller New Zealand profile rather than um, you know the Western lamb as we come to know it here in the United States, or the boutique producers such as myself. But um, with the emergence of, of, uh, of direct, fully integrated uh, business models such as what we're speaking now, that mere holistic productions that bring that value of not just of a, a quality perspective, but also a quantifiable value, which means that there's data associated with that product. Um, that's a tremendous advantage, and it's something that you know we certainly are, are working at and expanding upon. Um, if you, I guess it's kind of like this: if you bought a, a purebred uh, brand lamb from Elysian Fields, if you want to know what it ate, we can tell you. If you want to know what it, what it drank, we can tell you. Uh, there's all sorts of production data that's associated with that underlying quality, value, or distinction of the product. So that's that's an emergence and a, dis, a distinct advantage, I think, um, as to you know the marketing of, uh, of lamb here in this country. Yeah, and I well, I think what kind of gets uh, uncomfortable for folks, or I know for myself, like you know, farming without kind of an economic imperative is is a hobby and then when you kind of throwing in words like you know production models and systems i think we've been in a weird way kind of trained to um not preference that as consumers and so it's really interesting to kind of hear you speak and to spend some time on your website and look at you know the way a lot of that type of language has been co-opted and it's and, and then having these systems can I guess push us in the directions of sustainability and quality that we 
that we preference. Um, I know folks can like learn more about you guys by visiting the website, which is purebredlamb.com. And you do have the, the butcher shop so folks can get um, your lamb to taste for themselves. But are there other outlets or spaces that they can go if they want to learn more about your work or try some of your products? Well, we do have a relationship uh, from a retail perspective. Um, really, at the, at the top of that list would be Williams-Sonoma. And uh, we've been partnered with them um, through a catalog sales and website sales for quite some time. And uh, it's a tremendous relationship. Um, and we also have uh, here regionally uh, through Ohio and southwestern Pennsylvania a retail relationship with the market district stores. So it's available through... Uh, from a retail aspect um, uh, through the market district stores as well. So there, there's availability uh, other than just our, our website. And, of course, you could always, um, you know, dine at uh, you know, some of the better restaurants where we are distributed throughout the country. And, um, you know, I'm sure you can find us on a lot of menus. Well, from that def- perspective as well. <laughs> definitely French laundry is on my list, but I'm not <laughs> sure how there soon I'll get there. <laughs> <laughs> I want to throw one thing out there. I appreciate your comment and your insights as to the economic consequence. There's an economic consequence to everything we do, everything. Uh, within this param- parameter of time, this production parameter from, let's say, birth all the way to consumption, there's an element of that, a certain parameter uh, that is is economic and and essentially you, you you really can't get away from that and it's 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 a matter of focus for us. Do we focus on commodity? No, we decommoditize. Do we focus on the economic parameter of the product? Do we focus only on the product? No. Why do we, generally speaking, sometimes get caught in 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 the reality of focusing only on the seven weeks? that it's in its product form, and not the seven months that it's with us alive. See, for us, that never made any sense. You know, so we focus on the seven months, and by the time it gets to that uh, product, and, and we harvest respectfully, um, you know, there is an economic consequence that's present at that time, but I think that's universal. No matter, you know, we, we simply can't, you know, remove ourselves from that reality. Well, Keith, um, we are unfortunately out of time. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you. No, thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity. And again, um, you know, for thinking that <laughs> anything that I might have to say would be of interest to you and your listeners, it's um, I'm honored. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Well, very humble, folks. If you want to learn more about uh, Keith and the work that he does with Purebred Lamb, you can definitely check them out at www.purebredlamb.com. I want to send a big thanks again to John Wilkes, who joined us at the top of the show and has also been working with me to produce uh, the next couple of shows as we focus on the sheep and lamb industry. Tune in next week. We'll be looking at sheep and tech. Definitely going to be a jam-packed show, so looking forward to that. This program, like all 35 of our live weekly shows, are available for free. Um, You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher Smart Radio. But I hope you visit our website and check out all the great work and the great shows that are listed there. If you believe in our work and support what we do, I hope you'll become a member by clicking that Donate tab. Thank you so much for listening, and stay tuned in.
Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>